God desires for none to perish, but rather that all would repent. So they are delivering it to whoever would listen. And we are told, what? That the Lord's hand was with them. Now in the second part of this passage, we see the first Jewish church of Jerusalem. Thank you, Aaron, for that joke that no one got last week, and I'm sure no one would get this week. Uh, church, there, it's not called the first Jerusalem church. It's, that's a joke. It's a play. It's you know, like first Baptist church. It's first Jerusalem Jokes you have to explain aren't that funny. So we see the church in Jerusalem being true to form. When they hear something odd and different like Greeks in pagan Antioch coming to faith in Christ, uh, they send a representative to check out the legitimacy of what's taking place. So they send Barnabas, and upon arriving, Barnabas sees and... From what he sees, the text says he is glad. God's grace is evident in these new converts. So what does he do? He exhorts them. He says this, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Then in Act 3, Barnabas goes to Tarsus and finds Saul. He brings him back, and for a whole year, they teach the church at Antioch. And we see that it's here They are first called Christians. Act 4, the prophet Agabus comes down and prophesies that a famine is soon to take place. So we see the disciples determine that they will send out resources to the believers in Judea. So there's your four parts or acts, if you will, or movements in this text. It may be helpful if you just mark those, if you do that kind of thing. The reason I wanted you to see that breakdown before we begin is because uh, each of these parts give us a key that help us understand as to why they were called Christians or little Christ, which is the uh, literal meaning of the word Christian. So now what I want to do in the sermon is go back and examine each of these acts So we can pick up on the keys that they give us. Act 1. We see believers dispersed out. And remember that Luke makes it clear, what? That the hand of the Lord was upon the second group and blessing their efforts. Now, does this mean that his hand wasn't upon the other group? Well, I don't take it to mean that. I just see that that's not Luke's focus. So there's no need to draw conclusions about that first group that Luke doesn't give us, rather we can draw conclusions about the second group, which is exactly what he wants us to do. They are delivering the gospel to all, anyone who would listen. They aren't judging who might be more apt to respond positively to it. They aren't judging who deserves it more. They aren't letting their ethnicity get in the way or even their political leaning to get in their way, they are sharing it with anyone and everyone, and we read that the Lord's hand was with them. So this is the first key uh, that we get as to why they were called Christians. Christ's hand was with them. They aren't acting alone in their finite power. Rather, the powerful hand of their Lord is accompanying them, and his hand is bringing the spiritually dead 
to life. His hand is reaching out and bringing in a people for himself. His hand is taking out hearts of stone and inserting hearts of flesh. His hand alone is causing people to turn from themselves and to their creator God. His hand is accomplishing so much more than their hands ever could. And we can assume that they aren't those who are resisting his hand. They aren't people who are saying, no God, we've never done it that way. They aren't leading with their own hand, but rather they are following his hand. This is what it means to be called Christian. You submit to and operate underneath the power of his hand. Where his hand goes, you follow. And it is then that you will get to be a part of what he is doing in this world. Grace Fellowship. Do we believe that God is going to accomplish his work in this world with or without us? We believe it. Absolutely he's going to. So let us not be a church that misses out on where his hand is going and what his hand is doing. Let us be humble enough to try out different methodologies. Let us do things in a way that maybe we haven't ever done them before. And a very smart man said that while the gospel has never changed, the way in which we deliver it is constantly changing. And the reason for this is because our context is constantly changing. We accept this when it comes to missions, right? Like no one goes to Africa or China and preaches the gospel in English. Why? Because they wouldn't understand it. Being faithful to spread the gospel today means trusting his hand over the way that we've always done it. But let us not think that the way in which his hand is at work is only concerned with the how. No. His hand is concerned with the who. And you are part of the who. His hand is at work in your heart every single day. Let him work. Don't resist his hand. Let him change your mind as he changes your heart to be more aligned with his heart. Submit to his hand. They were called Christians because Christ's hand was upon them. And that leads us right into the second key of understanding why they are called Christians. It's uh, found in Barnabas' exhortation to them at the end of verse 23. He says, Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, this is a two-part exhortation that I would say gives these new believers their identity or purpose. Part one, they now belong to Jesus and they are to remain faithful to him. Part two is that he has called them to follow him and join in on what he is doing and they are to do this with steadfast purpose. Now, I want to rephrase this exhortation for us this morning to help us latch on to it a little better. So we'll say it like this. These believers' identity and purpose was found in knowing Christ 
and making him known. So let's begin with the first part of that. What does it mean to know Christ? Well, what it doesn't mean is that you just know of him. Like he clearly states in Matthew 7 that many on that day will recognize him and cry out, Lord, Lord. And he will tell them, depart from me, for I never knew you. What? The, the God of the universe didn't know them? Well, of course he knew them. He is their creator. He knows more about them than anyone else ever thought to know about them. He knows how many hairs are on their head. He knows their deepest hurts, fears, and insecurities. He knows their longings and desires. He even knows every one of their thoughts. But if this is so, why would Jesus one day say that he will look at people and tell them, I never knew you? Well, it's because in the scriptures, the biblical word for know means much more about, uh, it means much more than just knowing about someone or something. Take, for instance, in Genesis, when Adam knew Eve, you know what happened? She got pregnant. Knowing God is what we lost in the fall. Sin separates us from true knowledge of God. And true knowledge, church, is not just right facts about God. True knowledge is intimacy. This type of knowing is what God promised he would restore with his people. He says over and over again through the prophets that one day his people will know him. Jesus says, if you know me, then you know the Father. He tells the religious leaders of this day, you don't know the Father. Why? Because you hate me. Now here in this text, Barnabas is telling those who have been brought into relationship with the triune Godhead Remain faithful. Don't ever neglect intimacy with Jesus. Don't substitute it for anything else, for this would be idolatry. Barnabas is saying, your new identity is his bride. He is going to prepare a place for you, and he will return and take you to your forever home. Until then, remain faithful to him. Not an institution not a set of rules, not anything but him. But I want to be clear that God didn't just save you. You are part of his bride, a part of his body, the church. So this crazy Western notion that you can be faithful to him, yet be faithless to his body, makes absolutely no sense. And it's pretty awful that I would have to clarify that, but that's really where we're at in this very me-centered, individual, individualistic culture. So don't be fooled. Remain faithful to him. That includes his body. That he has made you to be a part of. So that's the first part of this exhortation, but you know it's only in this kind of intimate relationship with Jesus that he's saying remain faithful to that we begin to develop the heart for this world that we live in. And it's only upon developing his heart for this world that we will desire to make him known in this world. Which is the second part of the exhortation Barnabas gives. 
You know, Jesus said things like, for God so loved the world. I want that to settle with you. For God so loved the world. He did what? He gave his only son. That's some incredible love. Jesus said things like, the heavens rejoice more over one sinner. Like Nick Christiana, who repents, than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Jesus said, I didn't come for those who are healthy, but it's those who are sick that need a doctor. This is the purpose for which Jesus came. And this is the purpose that we are to live the rest of our lives for. To make Jesus known. To shout, our Redeemer lives. He's not a dead God that we've made a statue of and memorialized. He lives. He was a man and he lives. He's God. (laughs) To tell the sick about the great physician. To tell the addict that Jesus breaks every chain. (laughs) To tell those that are far off that it's Jesus who can bring them near. To tell the idolater that our king is actually who they're looking for. To tell those in despair that there is hope in Jesus because he is making all things new. So when Barnabas says remain faithful, steadfast in purpose, this is the purpose to which he is speaking. And that's our key from this act. They were called Christians because Christ's purpose was their purpose. Born again Christian. This is the purpose for which your soul now longs. I want you to hear me. If you're a born again Christian, this is the purpose for which your soul now longs. You know, we talk all the time so much about all the different troubles we all have in life. And I'm, uh, troubles are real. I'm not trying to belittle troubles. Life is extremely difficult, but church, we are not those who are living for this life alone. Our best life is not now. (laughs) Rather, we must see everything that enters our lives as an opportunity to put the glory of Jesus on display. Yes, even our hurts, even our pain, even our suffering, we believe just like Christ that it has a purpose to bring glory to Jesus. Thirdly, we're told that Saul joins Barnabas and they teach for a whole year in this third act. And it's actually in this section where we get our title that they are first called Christians. That's significant. Uh, Let me ask you, who is calling them Christians? Like, is this some kind of team name that they just decided they put on the back of their jerseys? No. No. No, outsiders are calling them Christians. But why? Well, as we've said above, Christ's hand is upon them. And Christ's purpose was their purpose. But also, we see them submitting themselves to Saul and the other elders' teaching. And Christ's character becoming their character. You see, as our hearts grow more intimately in love with God, as we become one with him 
this is going to naturally push its way out to the way that we act, to the way that we carry ourselves, to the things we prioritize, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, the words we use, the conversations we're a part of, the way we parent our children, the way we handle opposition, how we suffer through loss and rough circumstances, how we treat others, on and on and on. As our heart is changed, we will begin to live more and more by a Christian ethic. And I believe that more than any of the other keys, it was this one that people really paid attention to. It was this key that made these people stand out in their communities. Why? Well, it's the visible one. It's the visible one. So, for instance, when people were wronged in Antioch, when believers were wronged, it was natural for them to be upset and fight back. But not these little Christs. It almost seemed as if being wronged was something they expected in this world. Rather than returning wrong with anger, they returned wrongs with grace and forgiveness. Even welcoming those into their communities that had caused them and their families great pain. Just like they did with their teacher Saul. When people were sick and hurting with whatever awful disease it was of that day, these little Christs didn't go lock themselves in their homes trying to preserve their health. No, they went to those in need and sought to help them by putting themselves at risk. These believers in Antioch raised their children not to seek after worldly prestige and renown, but rather to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And lastly, they didn't keep all that God had given them stockpiled where the thief could break in and steal and moth and rust could destroy. But when Agabus came and prophesied that there would be famine over all the world, including their own community, they decided they would send out their resources to help the believers who would also be in need. Church, it's this kind of character that confounded people. And let me just be the first to say, I fail every day at displaying this kind of character. And there's grace for me and for you. But may we not neglect this key. How we treat people and how we live in this world speaks very loudly. Some would say that these type of actions even speak louder than words. They were called Christians because Christ's character was their character. And this brings us to our last key as to why they were called Christians. When Agabus came and foretold about this awful prophecy of famine, the church in Antioch knew that the greatest gift they possessed 
was the good news of Jesus Christ that had been given to them. This news had not only changed their lives, but had also changed their eternal destiny. And even the worst famine could not take this away from them. They were secure. But they also knew that this wonderful gift that they had received in the gospel did not come to them without cost, without great cost. The cost of God's one and only perfect son, the crown jewel of heaven, the spotless lamb who had to be slain, that cost. The cost of disciples leaving behind their families, businesses, and plan futures in order to follow this Messiah and learn from him. The cost of believers' homes being wrecked and ravaged, families displaced. Even the cost of Stephen's life is what it took for the gospel to get to them. And they knew if these were the costs that had to be made for the gospel to get to them, then everything was on the table for the purpose of getting the gospel to those who had yet to hear. They knew that if the gospel was going to reach the ends of the earth, then it would take far more than just the church at Antioch. It would take the church universal. So they opened their pockets and gave sacrificially to the churches all throughout Judea that would need it during this time of famine. Church Christ's mission was their mission. And that's why they were called Christians. So I want to end by asking you four questions. Question number one, are you resisting God's hand? Pretty straightforward. Like, is he trying to teach you, reveal something to you, soften your heart, draw you near, send you out? And are you resisting him? If that's you, then I want you to know today that you can trust God's sovereign and loving hand no matter where he leads you. Question number two, are you remaining faithful to the Lord, steadfast in purpose? Are you growing in intimacy with Christ, and are you looking to share him with others? If not, then I can guarantee if you're a believer, this life is not colorful for you. Most things probably seem overly difficult, and you may find yourself even thinking, what's the point? And I would tell you this morning, Christ is the point. This life is not about making a name for yourself or even leaving a legacy, noble as those things might be. This life is about knowing Christ and making him known. And if you're living in any other way, then it doesn't make sense. You're kicking against the goads. So don't grope in darkness any longer, but come and dance in the light of Jesus. He's waiting for you. Question number three, 
is Christ's character being formed in you, leading you to grow in humility as you see yourself as less important? Like, is it causing you to be more generous and sympathetic to those around you? Do you see yourself growing in hopefulness, anticipating what Christ is going to do next? If not, then praise God for this diagnostic. Understand that it probably means things aren't right underneath the hood or in your heart. So draw near to our high priest and ask him today, why is my character not changing? Why do I feel myself becoming more hard and bitter and calloused rather than the opposite of that? Question number four. Are you happy to sacrifice so that others can hear the good news of Jesus and receive the wonderful gift that was given to you at such a great cost? And if the answer to this question is no, then maybe there should be real thought today as why that might be. Maybe it's just as simple as you've overlooked the great cost, what it took to get the gospel to you, what it took that had to be paid so that you could receive God's grace. Or, Maybe you've grown to see the gospel as something you did. Like, well, you you believed, and, and others should do that. Or, you, you're earning this. You're, you're checking off the boxes. I'm playing my part. I'm here today. Or maybe you just think you had a right to it. Well, my parents were Christians. Grandparents were Christians. The good news of the gospel is that even though no one deserved to be saved, God has chosen those to save that would call upon his name. So church, how can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, if no one sacrifices, then no one hears the gospel. I am so, so, so thankful to God (laughs) to be a benefactor of his grace. I'm so, so thankful to God, as you heard me say in the baptistry, for Thomas Hale, for Carlton Weathers. For Ronald Haynes. For my mom. who have made sacrifices so that others can hear and believe the good news of Jesus. Church, may his hand be upon us. May his purpose be our purpose.
May his character be our character, and may his mission be our mission. May we be called Christians for these reasons. Today we get the awesome privilege of responding to this good news that I've shared with you by taking communion. Church, this is an awesome way to respond. (laughs) If you didn't know, I don't know what you think about communion, but it's an awesome way to respond to the glorious good news of the gospel. So Aaron's going to come and help us do this today. Should have had training. As Corey just said, I hope you see this as a continuation. And um, why don't the deacons go ahead and be passing out the elements. Um, And because of the pandemic, things are a little different from the way we normally do these. These are prepared sanitary packets. uh, So everyone has their own juice and bread and uh, but but back to what I was saying what Corey said is exactly right this is a marvelous privilege for us to continue what's just been proclaimed to us the sacraments of baptism which praise God for us being able to witness the first one and now we're able to participate in the second one these are the two that the Lord Jesus Christ gave us as his people to emulate him, to follow him in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And you could call these religious rites or rituals, but I think the Westminster Confession puts it better when we say sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him. So did you get that? They represent Christ and his benefits and confirm our interest in him. If we are his people, then this is our confirmation of Christ and his benefits in our lives. So, really, we need to be focused that way as we approach the Lord's Supper. Um, Maybe think of it this way. Corey has proclaimed the word of God unto us as his people. Now, to use the words of Augustine, we will see the visible word of God proclaimed to us. The sacraments are visible words. Like, like we 
we had the visible word proclaimed to us this morning in baptism. That was a visible demonstration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and following him in baptism, the death, burial, and resurrection of Nick Christiana and all of us who've done the same. So now we come to the visible demonstration of the covenant of Jesus Christ, his life and his benefits to us. I want you to think about it in its symbolism in these two ways. First of all, it's a symbolic supper. It is a supper. The most intimate thing you can do with anyone else is to dine with them. And it points back to the Passover, which was a supper of deliverance, a supper of release, a supper of protection from the death angel, release from slavery unto sin, and protection from death, eternal death from sin. And so it points back to that. But it points forward to what? A supper of marriage, a supper of celebration, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, Jesus said when he gave it to his disciples, I won't do this again until we do it together in the kingdom. And so it points back to a supper of deliverance, of redemption, of, of uh, protection. It points forward to a supper of celebration, of joy, of permanent, complete union with Christ forever in consummation of all things. It also points back to the crucifixion. Paul wrote, and repeating Christ, that as often as we do it, we proclaim his death. So when we do this, we're symbolically proclaiming the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You could say the cross. But symbolically, we're also What's the rest of that quote? Until he comes. We're proclaiming his death, what? Until he comes. So we're looking forward. We're looking back at the crucifixion. We're looking forward at what? The consummation. I mean, I'm not just talking about when he comes again. I'm not just talking about when you die. I'm talking about the consummation of all things. And when, when, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, when God is all in all, when Jesus presents us as his bride back to the Father and the Father gives us to him as his bride so that God may be all in all. I don't even know what that means. But it's majestic. I can tell you that. It's epic. That is something great that we look forward to. So, that's what we're here to do, is to proclaim the Lord's crucifixion, the gospel, and to look forward to the Lord's coming again, and our going with him, and being with him forever. So, excuse me while I get my packet open.
And I remind you, even in the pandemic, it's our responsibility to remind you this is the Lord's Supper. It's not mine. It's not Grace Fellowship's. It's the Lord's Supper. So it's for his people. And it's restricted to his people. So if you are not his, then he forbids you to participate. Not me, but he. If you're his, no one can keep you from participating because you belong to him. So it's the Lord's Supper. We participate at Grace Fellowship simultaneously. But remember, this is personal for you. You celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that grace is communicated once again, fresh and anew to you personally. Although we're doing it corporately, this is between you and the Lord. This is a revival. This is a spiritual revival for everyone who is here. So, the Lord has opened his table. And during the supper, when he'd given thanks, and so I'm inviting all of you to participate with me. During the supper, when he'd given thanks with his disciples, he took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, afterwards, he took the cup and he blessed it as his blood, the blood of the new covenant. And we know if we walk in the light as he himself is the light, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus.